Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Uh, happy, ooh, I don't even know. What, what is this week? Happy almost August. It is almost August. Oh, happy Bayham's Army is 2-0. Week. There you go. Oh, happy uh, right. happy birthday, Sean Keeley. Happy birthday, Sean Keeley, which uh, is going to be, what, two or three days ago by the time this gets posted? Eh, I mean, hopefully, ho- hopefully it's yesterday. <laughs> yes, hopefully it's yesterday. Um, and I will say that, you know, it's taken so long for Tim, for uh, Tom McPherson to get the Heisman Trophy recognition uh, that he deserves. So we, I think Sean will still appreciate one day late uh, birthday appreciation. <laughs> I saw his uh, his birthday present today was uh, he he got a follow from Charlie Loeb. That's I mean is, is that not the uh, is that not the customary? How do you what do you get for someone that has everything? <laughs> apparently apparently I saw that apparently Charlie's coaching quarterbacks at uh I see Saint Ansel uh, Anselm Anselm which we ha- we, we have a lot of experience with at SU for some reason. Do we? Yeah, um, I believe Lester or somebody else in the old staff was there. I think that somebody on the current staff might have been there at some point. Um, I think uh, Lust- I think Lustig might have been there. Was a uh, uh, offensive line coach from under Schaefer, whose name's escaping me. Uh, was he there? That sounds about right. Adam. Uh, jo- uh, yes. Joe Adam. Uh, Joe Adam might have been there. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that that uh, I don't remember. If there was any overlap, I don't think so because I think Loeb was done in 2013, yeah, ish. So I don't know if there was overlap there, but uh, but yeah, definitely interesting connection. Good for him. Yeah, I totally agree. Joe Adam was that Saint Ans- Anselm. Anselm's a weird word. I've learned in this last like minute. It's not even a word. <laughs> it's a weird name. It's like a hard it, like because I I'm I'm like trained to say A S and not A N. It's just a weird combination of letters. I don't like it. I buy that. Ben and Selm. See, I can't even say anything. And and Selm. Yeah, we're out of here. I don't. I don't like it. <laughs> this is the worst opening ever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, bullet number one. John and Dan try to pronounce a word for five minutes. <laughs> An obscure. Uh, I'm guessing D three uh, school name from Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, as we mentioned, Bayheim's army is two and zero. They're in the Northeast bracket. They're headed down to Atlanta um, to face Armored Athlete. Uh, first and foremost, Armored Athlete is the number four team in this bracket. They're also 2-0. They looked really good in the first round, uh, a little bit closer in the second. They're pretty stacked, uh, to be honest. I mean, Bayheim's Army played well in the first couple of rounds, but also kind of messed around a little bit too much. Um, and that works against lesser teams. It's not going to work against... You know, a group of players with, with guys from Oregon and Purdue, Rhode Island, Indiana, Louisville, West Virginia, Ole Miss, Miami, Holy Cross. <laughs> like, the, 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 there's a lot of guys on this team. And, and while they might not have the continuity that Beheim's Army definitely, uh, you know, benefits from, they do just have the raw talent uh, and, and a lot of guys. I mean, not really much, uh, if any, NBA experience, but some G League experience, um, a bunch of experience playing abroad. Um, so th- these guys are pretty talented nonetheless. Yeah, it's not totally unlike the uh, the last team we just faced, uh, which whose name is escaping me. Team um, Fancy. Team Fancy, which had a, a smattering of players you probably recognize as a college basketball fan. This this team is is largely the same. Um, you've got probably more talent. I'd say you have Jordan Holes and uh, Will Sheehy, who were both at Indiana for a while. I think they were both on that Indiana team that we beat. They were. Um, 
in the NCAA tournament in 2013. Kevin Jones, who was a very good player for West Virginia. Preston Knowles, who was at Louisville, who we obviously played. Stephen Moody, who was the best player at Ole Miss for a while, a couple of years ago. I'm going down the list here. Uh, Marcus Thornton, who was at William & Mary, but I feel like he was somewhere else before that, right? Uh, no, that's the other Marcus Thornton. Okay. Okay, I was thinking of former uh, net Marcus yes, Thornton. Yes, Mar- that Marcus Thornton <laughs> went to LSU. I did the same yeah. thing last night, and then I, like, re... And then I started, like, looking around. Um, some of the fun Character facts... White, who was at Ole Miss, so, like, yeah, there's, that's a lot of pretty high-end D1 talent. Yeah, so some of the... Two, the two fun facts I named in, in the article that I did for the preview today was uh, the Marcus Thornton me- uh, mention that we just had. Uh, where that... He actually looks like the other Marcus Thornton, too, which throws me <laughs> off. Yeah, the, like the, he looks like him, and I think they're like listed around the same like. They went to school around the same time. Yeah, like they. I'm looking at regular Marcus Thornton. I mean, <laughs> that's the best way to describe him. <laughs> uh, former NBA player Marcus Thornton, who is a six foot four shooting guard. This Marcus Thornton is a six foot three guard. Uh, um, yeah, Thornton Prime. So, uh, <laughs> right, both have facial hair. The the uh, the mid stuff's understandable. Totally is, yeah. Uh, the other Marcus Thornton uh, played for the Wizards in 2017. That was his last NBA stop. He played for the Kings and the Nets for a while, and he was one of those guys who would like barely play for a week at a time, and then he would drop like 25 out of nowhere, yeah. and would also like, be a trade kicker week. like randomly. Yes, he was probably traded about five times, as I recall. Um, the other fun fact I mentioned: um, armored athlete players are six and nine all time against Syracuse. Nice. Um, unfortunately, all six belong to Preston Knowles. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes. He I'm, was. I'm kind of surprised Kevin Jones didn't get one. Although he, was no, he? He was on from 08 to 12, and that included a five-game losing streak. I was going to say, was he too late? But no, that that's actually really funny because like those were really good West Virginia teams. It was also really good Syracuse teams. Yeah. There was really that one. You remember that one in there? It was 2011 where we almost effed it up. Uh, I, I, if you gave me more details, I would. It was like a late. I don't remember exactly what happened. Like we had a lead, and then we like almost messed it up with some free throws. It was, I think it was 2011. Like where we like got by, we got out of there by like the skin of our teeth, um, if I recall correctly. I, I believe you because it yeah. sounds like a very plausible. I, 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 I remember I was watching the game at brunch and pissing off my friends and my wife. Uh, because, because, but uh, I, told, I told them just don't just don't schedule things for when I'm like, you know, gonna uh, have okay. Yeah, we we actually came back. Ah, that's right. I found the damn it. We won sixty three fifty two, but it was like way closer than that. I'm looking at the uh, the box store now. Yeah, apparently we were down. Oh wait, no, that's not the game I was talking about. I was talking about the two thousand twelve game. Apparently, that's the game. okay. The sixty three sixty one win. Okay. Where a lot of dumb things happen that I can't necessarily remember at this point. You know what I enjoy, though, is that when you Google 2012 Syracuse, West Virginia, you get the uh, pinstripe bowl. So <laughs> that definitely was not one that we almost gave up. We, we won that one pretty decisively. Um, 63-61 game. Uh, let's see, do I remember this one? Kevin Jones scored 20 in that game, which is, I guess, uh, relevant. And Brendan Trish scored 18. He actually scored 20 in the one the year before. Yeah. Um, so Brendan Trish apparently was good against West Virginia. Who knew? Yeah, uh, yeah, but the other players, uh, Jordan Hulls went 0-1, uh, Will Sheehy went 0-2, uh, Demetrius Conger um, was 0-1 against, it was 0-1 with the Bonnies, uh, Jones was 0-5, and, and then you get to Preston Knowles and his 6-0 record from 2007 to 2011. Uh, yep. So, just so, I literally, I never saw them beat 
Pitt or Louisville the entire time I was at SU? Um, I think I finally saw us beat Louisville maybe my last year. Hmm. Maybe the uh, my last year was the was the Elite Eight team. I can't remember, though. But I've obviously Pitt and Louisville were our only regular season losses in the 2010 year, and they just dominated. Those were the two teams. And now, actually, it's funny that, like, after the ACC – move obviously louisville's been you know had it had its craziness um pitts obviously struggled syracuse hasn't been great the whole time but has had the two uh the two deep tournament runs but also our luck has really shifted against those two teams and most teams uh, really even in like in the acc unc is the only team that were really like significantly under or over 500 against yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, even like BC obviously has, has had those weird wins against us. And... Well, I think them were like eight and four. That sounds right. Yeah, but that's not like crazy. No. That's not like what we did to like West Virginia in this streak or even like Marquette for a long time just could not beat us for, to save their lives despite being, you know, a very good team. So, Big East, we definitely had these like weirder things where like t- there were the two teams we could not beat and then there were like a handful of teams, even really good ones that just could not touch us for some reason. It was very strange. Um, so for this game, I, I'm concerned about the shooters for them. I'm concerned about the fact that uh, Tariqa White pretty much did whatever the hell he wanted the last couple games. Scored a combined 44 points. Went 6 of 11 in the opener from 3. Um, obviously, Demetrius Nichols shot pretty well from 3. Previously, I know John Gillen shot really well. Um, nonetheless, like he's going to be somebody to watch and, and somebody to really be concerned about. Uh, Julian Gamble, who played for Miami. Um, had a double double this past game, as did Murphy Holloway. You can't hone in on one guy here, and, and, and you know I think for Syracuse that's the case as well, um, which should be an equal challenge for both teams. But I, I am kind of concerned that you know this Sir- this team of Syracuse alums could fall for the same reasons that a, a typical and, and scholarship Syracuse team would fall. Yeah, I think the the thing that we've noted through these last couple of years of the Bayheim's army runs is that they do tend to play like Syracuse, which I guess <laughs> makes sense, but you wouldn't necessarily think they would like, you'd fall back into old habits, but it's definitely the case. Um, the one thing I will say, looking at the box store from last game, they really ran their five guys out there. Um, there were five guys that played over 21 minutes and everyone else was in single digits, including Moody, who was a really good player in the sec. He might've even been sec player of the year, his senior year. And then John Octavius, who uh, was a pretty, he, he was at Purdue, I think. Uh, yes. I guess he finished at Colorado State. Um, but yeah, both those guys even played under 10 minutes a game. So I, I do wonder if that was a, a... I don't know if they've like just been... Just worked with the rest of the team less or what the deal is. But it, it, they had much more of a uh, defined five-player rotation with a couple other guys sprinkled in uh, versus some of these other teams that definitely balance things out more. I mean, even us, it's weird. Like, you know, Ryan Blackwell's not... Um, Jim Beheim, but he, he his rotations look pretty similar. Um, you know, if you do look at the the previous uh, Beheim's Army box score, uh, six players played 22 minutes or more, and then you had another three: Chris Joseph, James Sutherland, and, and Deshante Riley uh, pick up the rear for for a combined 29 minutes. Riley had zero shots. Uh, Sutherland was only one of three. Like this is what I don't get. And I don't put this on the coaching staff. I just think like Joseph and Sutherland seem like guys who can score, um, but but really didn't get much of an opportunity to do it. Trish was cold from the floor. Um, everybody else was was 
all right, to be honest. Like, it, I mean, the low score w- would make you think that everybody was pretty ice cold. But, like, I mean, Onowaku got a lot of chances inside and only converted four of 11. Um, and then, yeah, like, that one for eight from Trish, really. Like, those two, I think, uh, lines kind of tell the story. Everybody else shot about 500 or, or better from, from the floor as far as, like, the, uh, the six standard rotation guys. Yeah, it, it feels like we are kind of riding the hot hand, and, and Chris hasn't really gone to drawing yet. Um, Sutherland is a little surprising because he, you know, was such a, a big factor last season, and right. he really hasn't gotten it going. He was one for eight in the first game, but obviously, then you have like John Dillon, you just can't take off the floor based on how he's playing. He's been the best player on the team, which is probably not something that that we would have projected. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> um, I know he had some moments last year for sure, but like he's just been so far and away the best player on the team, um, and and was uh, you know unbelievable in game one, and then. Uh, helped ice game two uh, down the stretch along with Nichols, big clutch three. Um, so that's, I mean, that's nice, like, considering Gillen, like, you know, he had a, obviously some huge moments in his one year at Syracuse, but, you know, then there were other games where he couldn't really even get on the floor because of matchup issues or because of defensive issues. Um, and I tweeted something like, it's cool to see, like, uh, some of these guys who, who you know, maybe didn't get these full flushed uh, Syracuse legacies. Even Deshante Riley had, you know, some huge moments in, in uh, the TBT last year, and he transferred away after two years It's from Syracuse. Um, it really allows them to kind of add a little bit something to it uh, because clearly the Syracuse fan base uh, is taking this, you know, and we've talked about it, like taking it more seriously than I, Just about I think anybody. the vast majority. <laughs> yes, which which I don't expect anything less. And, like, we joked about it heading in, and then, like, obviously I was on the edge of my seat the first game uh, until we broke things open, um, and the second game as well. So, it's definitely uh, cool to see guys like that mixed up with like guys like Warwick who were, you know, not have been at the school for, for however long, which is, you know, depressing to think of because of the, the amount of time we've waited since that last national championship. But he, you know, he has been around for what now 12 years, I guess, after, since he graduated. So that's one of the really cool things here, but you, you do hope that you get, especially Joseph and Sutherland um, with their scoring ability, you, you hope they get them going because they should be on paper two of the more, uh, well-rounded scorers and, and well-equipped for this tournament on the team. Yeah, I mean, they should be well-equipped. I think, like, you look at the size advantage that we have with guys like Warwick and Onowaku and Riley. Like, even Sutherland's a little bit bigger. He's 6'8". Like, we should have a size advantage against most of these teams, and I think we definitely had a size advantage against Team Fancy. Um, I I do hope that they can get Onowaku going because I feel like, you know, we talked about it before the, the tournament started. Like, that to me definitely seemed like our, uh, our 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 biggest plus was having somebody that could really man the middle on, on both ends you know if if Gale Nation had been able to advance against Armored Athlete I would have felt really great if only because you know they really are a smaller team they trotted out four guards last game um, against Armored Athlete uh, Armored Athlete has some size in there Holloway Gamble like they put again both put up double digit rebounds um, so you know, guys to watch, and then Tariko White also had nine rebounds himself. Like, I, but yeah, I, I do think that that Onowaku is going to be the key here. Like, he hasn't really broken a game open just yet. Um, if he can sink more of those shots, um, collect a couple more boards, I, I think that you know he becomes such a difference maker because he is one of the bigger players left in the field. Yeah, uh, it will be interesting to see. Uh, it will be interesting to see if we can get him going. He is kind of a different player uh, in this tournament. You know, we haven't seen. Um, too many like true low post presences like him really make a huge impact. Um, but it feels like he should be able to. Uh, the one concern for me is the refereeing has been uh, very shoddy. Um, yeah, I guess I guess that's you know what you get in like a pro am tournament like this, but it's been very questionable. 
Um, he's only two for six from the line so far through two games. Um, but even just like getting calls down there uh, can be like difficult just because, you know, I, I think these kind of refs are, are going to be more, uh, I imagine they'd be more um, concerned about not making like the game a, a total foul slot fest, especially when you have a tournament that uh, is including the Elam ending where the whole like deal is to avoid like crazy foul shooting contests. Um, so hopefully uh, if we do kind of pound it inside, he's, you know, obviously him at the lines an adventure, but hopefully he's at least getting there if, if he's actually getting fouled. Oh, hundred um, percent. So for you, like, how do you see this matchup playing out? Do you think that they just have too many shooters? Do you think it's really going to rely on Onowaku? Do you think that, that we just have to wait and see if, if one of these other shooters on the SU bench can get hot, I'm like I mentioned at, at the start. Like I am, I am a little nervous about this game, and, and maybe it's just a style of play thing from the first couple of games where we were really kind of playing bully ball. Um, I would like us to push the pace a little bit here because I think that's the only way you're going to be able to to beat, um, you know, armored athlete given the scores they've been able to put up so far. Yeah, I'm definitely concerned. I mean, they have the talent. They have a, a nice complement of shooters. We've I don't think we didn't face them last year, did we? Uh, we did not. No, we faced another team that was very similar, where it was like a collection of like college names you'd know. Um, even the last, even Team Fancy was like kind of like that, but not as as deep. Um, I, I think having two games under our belt will help, um, just for the chemistry. Like, obviously they have that their little like week long camp, but I feel like the, this team we saw last year got a lot better during the tournament, um, even as the competition ramped up. So hopefully that's the case as uh, once again, and we just have seen so many like like Sutherland and, and Joseph especially, and even Devendorf hasn't been, you know, super on his offensive game. Um, it's really been the Dylan show with with some nickels as well. Um, I just think this roster has so much more to offer that as long as we unlock at least a couple more of these guys, then you know we'll we'll really see what this team can do. Versus you know what was a, a really a grind in in round two and even through in round one, the first three quarters this team didn't really show up to play super well it was just that fourth quarter that was that was so impressive so and and the one thing i will say is it's impressive that blackwell has seemed to um he seems to really know what he's doing with his elam ending um we saw him uh take the time out to to make sure that he was getting uh the best possible scenario to get to the seven points for uh to get that the extra seven points the team's getting to the line even though that's supposed to uh you know designed to kind of prevent that the team's attacking and and forcing the defense to to make mistakes down the stretch, so I think he's he's really coached to this new style of of uh, the end game pretty well, uh, which which helps because I think uh, I I haven't seen a ton of the other games, but I've read a couple other instances where the coaches haven't been as equipped. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, if you change some of the rules of the game, if somebody's not ready to to, to adjust, it can definitely cause problems. So I do commend Blackwell for being able to do that. Switching focus a little bit before we get to halftime, uh, did want to talk about the ACC Network. Um, there was a little bit of talk about it um, over at the ACC football kickoff last week. Uh, they were just discussing, you know, some Labor Day games and Syracuse might be involved there against Pitt next year. Um, wouldn't be the future game, obviously. Um, and then maybe moving some uh, basketball games to a kind of like, you know, in-conference tip-off situation where like Duke would be removed because they always have the um, Champions Classic, whatever the hell that thing is, um, that they play in, but then everybody else you know, would kind of play like a game uh, just to kick things off and, and start off like, you know, with the conference game. A lot of those games, if not all of them, would end up on um, ACC Network. It would drive subscriptions. It would drive interest in the network. Uh, that all seems interesting. But 
to me, I, I think the bigger issue here is is the overall dynamic of, of cord cutting and, and the changes with you know over the top programming and streaming, and and how that's becoming the prevailing notion where people are going, and yet. This ACC network is, is supposedly going to be, uh, you know, focused on linear. I, I find I find the timing odd, and I find the any talk of an eight to ten million dollar range um, for per school for for revenues from this thing to be uh, to be largely overblown. Yeah, it, it's uh, the one thing I will say, which is I'm going to be optimistic about it, uh, especially compared to some of the things we've heard about the concerns of the Big Ten Network, which I think Dan Wetzel raised recently. Yep. Um, coming off their media days, where there could be you know a dip in, in, I mean, there's the whole Comcast issue where they might lose a lot of their uh, their coverage, which makes the whole Maryland Rutgers thing kind of look funny if that's the case <laughs> in those areas. But we'll find, we'll we'll see. I know ESPN has had um, you know its own issues with cable cutting. Um, the thing is, I would much rather be tied to ESPN than tied to like the Fox. Uh, yes, hundred percent. The Fox conglomerate. Um, I think ESPN is going to survive. Now they might not be the the total behemoth that they were in like the mid two thousands, but ESPN's not going anywhere, um, and they're not going to just punt on the ACC network after like a bad year. Like I think the ACC network is going to be something for the long haul. It's just the partnership there is too strong. It's too important. So. Um, I did. I did appreciate your article. I think uh, they definitely need to think past like what we've seen from these networks generally. I think um, SEC networks probably a little more fully flushed out because they have like the documentary series and they have Feinbaum who they who they nailed down ahead of Media Days, which is important. Um, I think kind of developing some similar stuff for the ACC is important, um, but also not just like relying on on old games because while those have some like some fun kitsch, uh, I think you you definitely need something a little bit more dynamic, especially. As we move into this, you know, digital, um, more digitally focused era, where where there's going to be more of a push for for original content and stuff that people are actually going to want to watch versus just like having it to have it. So it, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. The ACC obviously doesn't have the brand recognition as the uh, SEC or the Big Ten, and and probably not the the level of diehard fandom across the board. But I also think it's probably going to be. Um, I imagine it's going to cost less. I mean, we know Syracuse is so heavily involved, and there's going to be a lot of student, student-run stuff. Um, but hopefully, it, it allows ESPN to like be a little forward-thinking because I think overall, like, the ACC is not going anywhere. So I, I think it kind of opens them up to take some risks and try some new things as well. Oh yeah, and to be honest, like I think the ACC network is going to is going to be there. I just think it's it's a question of whether how successful it can be and 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 how much carriage it can get outside of of the Mid Atlantic area. I, I'm not even expanding that out to be honest like i'd say from florida to virginia they're good and then past there like that's where the problems start especially for you know like whether it's new york or like there's a lot of carrier issues that that get introduced i mean who knows what happens with you you saw what what's happened with the pac-12 like no they haven't been bled dry by not being on direct tv but it certainly hasn't helped i mean you're looking at well over 20 million households there that they still haven't been able to get into and now they might not get into it all ever based on um, kind of the issues they're having with AT&T and DirecTV. To me, I, I, I do think that, yeah, the, the unique unique programming and, and, and rolling the dice a little bit is the only way you're going to be able to get carriage, not, and not, you know, not just viewers. Like Big Ten Network and SEC Network have carriage, but you look at, you look, you look at what they're able to, to do with that and, and, and getting in front of people, and it's not necessarily that great. I mean, the Big Ten has some really nice spikes um, in terms of TV impressions, um, around football games, but beyond that, like 
not not a whole lot of people are watching you know during the holidays not a whole lot of people are watching um during the early parts of the basketball season until you get to, to tournament time and then even then like the only spikes were really and this is all based on data that i've seen the only spikes um that were kind of created were around you know some of the men's basketball tournament games that were tossed on there and then after that like it's all kind of dead period um for uh for the SEC network those viewer numbers um really weren't at least for you know just in terms of raw impressions weren't really um even close to what the Big 10 was putting up for those big games and the SEC actually was getting more bang out of um you know those uh those basketball games because you know Big 10 fans as, as much as you know it you can overgeneralize you know the, the southeast you can overgeneralize the midwest as much as you want uh, there's a lot bigger cities, um, you know, in the, in the Big Ten, and there's a lot larger uh, characters, there's a lot larger alumni bases in large cities of the Big Ten. So for them, you, you are seeing this sort of, like you can put Penn State, Ohio State on Big Ten Network, and people are going to watch and, and figure it out. Um, down, the south, down the Southeast and down the Southeastern Conference, like, you can't put Alabama, Auburn on SEC Network. People lose their goddamn minds, and, and half the fan base, hell, half of the SEC's fan base collectively either wouldn't have it or, or wouldn't even know how to get to it and, and would, would, you know, burn down the local Piggly Wiggly to, uh, and, and, as a result. So I, I think that they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place there, and, and I'm curious to see how that develops for them, but I'm curious to see, too, the kind of type of lessons that that teaches, you know, the ACC and ESPN as they're, uh, they're going through this endeavor with a year out. Yeah, I will say one of the advantages that the ACC does have in that regard is that it, um, I would imagine, I think I, I think someone did a study a couple of years ago, I, I'm i going to assume the ACC still has the largest uh, footprint in terms of they population. Do. They do. Yeah. So now I don't know that necessarily means that the AC network is going to be um, automatically in all of those spots. But if it does, if ESPN does a nice job of getting it on everywhere, I know there were some issues with the SEC network before launch, um, if I remember correctly. Um, if the the ACC network will be available to a lot of people. Now, you know, getting people to tune in is a whole different issue, um, especially as cable cutting becomes more of a thing and fewer people are going to be paying those those fees. So. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, at the end of the day, I feel way more comfortable being partnered with ESPN than not being partnered with ESPN on this because I don't think they'll let it just fail. It might not be like a resounding success, but I think it will be something, and something is better than the RSN situation. Well, yeah, that was uh, that was one of, <laughs> that was one of my big uh, you know pieces of focus in that article today. I was talking about like unique content and using the digital. Uh, community around the ACC, you know, one that was kind of birthed by the, the realignment scare and everything else. Like, we do have a lot of fun collectively as a group with, with with the nonsense that goes around the ACC, both the good and bad, you know, whether it's people like Ben Swain or ourselves or Lauren Brownlow. Like, there's a lot of people that, that have a lot of fun with ACC content online. And, like, no, it doesn't mean that the ACC network and ESPN should be hiring all those people, but uh, th- there are a lot of easy ways to get those folks involved. Um, and, 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 you know, push them forward as kind of the fabric that holds this conference together. Like, when you look at the ACC, it, it's easy to kind of write them off as not necessarily having a collective culture. Um, and no, we don't have the same one that, like, maybe the Big Ten SEC do. But I, I would say the ACC's collective culture is, is, is more digital and also stronger just in general in terms of common fabric and common uh, ground and, and, and things that the universities share, you know, a lot of them are academically focused. Uh, there's a bunch of private schools there. Like, uh, we send a lot of our alums to similar areas. Like there's a lot, there are a lot of similarities there and, and there's a lot to, uh, 
to kind of bank on and, and really hone in on and, and celebrate and push because that's really what's going to get people tuned in is feeling like they're invested in something. Um, I, at least for me, like that's why I watch, uh, at least at its height, I've watched a lot of ESPNU over the years. They feel like it's, it's community and it's a conversation that, that I feel involved in and invested in. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Um, it'll be fascinating to see how they handle it. Uh, uh, it's It's been a little disconcerting that we haven't heard like that many specifics heading in, especially as we near uh, when this launch is supposed to happen. But ultimately, I think, you know, it'll probably be a, a reasonable facsimile of what we've seen with uh, the SEC network with hopefully, you know, as we, as we, we grow out, we'll see a, a, something a little more interesting, um, especially with the student involvement. Totally. Um, all right. I think that's good for Syracuse and ACC-related stuff. Why don't we move on a little bit of beer? Dan, what have you been drinking? Okay, so I actually have had a, a bunch of things since last time we spoke. Um, most of it was... I'm trying to remember the date. We were on the 18th last time, right? Yes. Okay, so a couple of different things. Um, so on Monday, I was out with a couple of friends at the Astoria Beer and Cheese in Queens, which is a great beer shop and cheese shop, as you can imagine from the name. Um I had uh, a flight uh, of a couple of the things I have on tap. Uh, they usually get some pretty pretty unique, uh, rare things there. Um, I had a coconut almond abduction um, from Pipeworts Brewing. Uh, very, very dark, um, super coconutty, uh, really strong alcohol, I think, as well. It's over 10%. Um, really nice uh, kind of velvety flavor for, a, for an imperial stout. Um, that's from Pipeworks Brewing. Uh, so that was nice. I'm definitely like, I feel like I, I've definitely gotten more into dark beers. I, I'll only have like one or two at a time, but I've definitely opened up to those. Um, I've had a once, twice, three times a whale from Finback Brewing, uh, which was a very, very extremely hazy double IPA. Like if you look at it, it actually looks like orange juice um, and 8.2%. But actually, uh, surprisingly, based on like how hazy it was and, and how strong it was, the hops were like pretty gentle. I'm not sure what the what the actual hops they use in it are. I'm sure it's not too hard to find it, figure it out. But um, uh, just really, really drinkable for what it was. Um, so that was a, a surprise. I had a burst from Fox Farm Brewing, which is in Salem, Connecticut, which I had not heard of before, uh, and neither had the people at Astoria Beer and Cheese uh, until they got this one on tap. Um, which is a really nice, just kind of standard American IPA. Nothing too crazy. Um, just really well balanced, solid effort. Um, and I think it's like the first thing they've really kind of sent around. So it's a nice introduction, I think. I had uh, later on, we went to John Brown Smokehouse, which is in, also in Queens, has a really good beer menu. Um, I had a Bushwick Zombie from King's uh, County Brewer, Brewers Collective, one of the better breweries here in New York, uh, which is a raspberry peach sour. Really, really good. Uh, very, very, like, you know, very flavorful, fruity sour. So you know what you're getting into. It's like bright, bright red, um, but very, very drinkable and delicious. I had a combining forms from Finback there, which is another strong IPA. I think I've had that one before and mentioned it. Um, I had a citrus, Citra Bravo Mango later at Fifth Heimer Brewing Company, uh, which was a nice IPA and a couple other things from them. Um, and the only other one that I had, which wasn't among my favorites of the day, uh, was the Post Shift Pilsner by Jarrett's Abbey. Um, but I do bring it up because uh, on Mondays, John Brown has this for $2, which is basically like unheard of in the city. So if you're around Queens and you want a $2 pint, like that that's your shot very nice you heard it from the man yeah i carried the banner this week uh i i did some stuff but mine's mine's gonna be a lot more boring than that um 
I was out in Palm Springs, I mentioned last week, so uh, I had a Bavic Super Pills, um, I had a bunch of Lagunitas, a little something easy, uh, I had a Stone Ripper from uh, Stone, and then I had some house beer, and that was really it. Tried to keep it light, it was like 118 degrees, uh, I had no interest in drinking anything heavier than like a 5.5% pale ale. That's fair. Um, I should plug it again since we are getting close. Yeah, go for it. Um, August 16th, uh, the Syracuse Alumni Club of Westchester County slash Fairfield County um, is hosting a beer tasting and Syracuse football talk with yours truly at Broken Bow Brewing, uh, Broken Bow Brewing in uh, Tuckahoe, New York, which is just north of uh, the city. Um, it says it's running from 6 to 8.30 p.m. I will be there talking SU football and drinking beers. So um, there's more information through uh, through the Alumni Association. I'm sure we can toss another link. I know we did a couple of weeks ago, but we'd love to see everyone there. So uh, shoot me a line if you need any more information, but I'll be there and it should be a pretty good time. Ask Tulane questions. You can devolve this thing into the podcast without yes, me. If you, if you bring <laughs> me a piece of Tulane gear, I'll buy you a beer. There it is. Um, all right. Uh, now we shift, actually, to Tulane's old conference, the SEC. People forget that. People forget that. Shout out to Georgia Tech and Suwani. I'm sure some other people were in there, too, but I know those, those guys in particular. Um, so, yeah. The SEC is pretty much what it always is. Let's start with, like, the, the, the mess-around nonsense teams, just because I feel like, I don't know, I don't, I don't need to get into, like, the soul-sucking hellscape that is Alabama football and how boring it is. Um, we'll get there eventually, I swear. There's a bunch of teams with new coaches. Um, Arkansas, in particular, uh, brings in uh, a new coach in uh, Chad Morris, who, uh, who did pretty well at SMU. Uh, I'm interested in the fit here. I think it's going to go poorly this year, but you're going to see the pieces coming together uh, for the Razorbacks. Yeah, I, I like the Chad Morris hire. It was kind of, it wasn't like out of total nowhere, but it wasn't super expected. Obviously, they had a long dalliance with Dust Malzahn, who's a native son. Um, ultimately, he used them to get Auburn to give him a giant deal. Uh, so, you know, kudos to him. Um, Morris was, I think he's a, a relatively inspired hire. It takes Arkansas in a slightly different direction. Mostly interested in to see in the future how the recruiting goes, because he's a Texas die through and through. Um, and I think there is room for a couple other schools that aren't A&M and LSU to a lesser extent to get more involved in Texas. Um, and Arkansas is obviously in more natural fit since they are a former Big 12 member. I think they have uh, Devall Whaley, who is a star running back, who is returning. He'll be very good the whole, uh, right off the bat. I'm interested to see how much of a transition there is on offense because even late in the in the Brett Bielema uh, tenure, they started opening things up more on offense from like the old Wisconsin ground and pound that he was trying to institute there in the beginning. So I think it might be a little less of a transition on that side of the ball than, than you know, is, is obvious, but still like Morris takes things to another level with his, his style of uh, Texas spread. So um, I, it's a nice hire. I, I do think they're going to be fighting an uphill battle at, at first, but overall I like, I like this move. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, some of it's just a product of division. Like you're in the SEC West. It's, it's similar at this point to like, you know, the ACC Atlantic too, where like, you can improve, and you might not notice it for a couple of years, if only because of how good everybody else is. So, good luck, Hogs. Um, I would say that you know they're probably not the worst team of those that change coaches this off season, though. I think that honor goes to Tennessee. Uh, I don't really know what they've got on this team right now. I think there's still plenty of talent. 
Uh, I just don't know if it's it's talent that gets him to a bowl game, especially when there's like a lot of questions already around Jeremy Pruitt. Yeah, this was my probably my least favorite hire of this this group of SEC hires. Um, clearly, like Kirby Smart, obviously has kind of bucked the trend of Saban assistants not living up. Um, at least as of now, I, I tend to believe that's going to continue. He seems to be doing everything about as well as possible. Yeah. Um, the Pruitt hire is clearly like, hey, look what they just did. Um, let's go do that. And also, we're Alabama's rivals, so let's just like poach their guys since they beat the hell out of us every year. Um, this is why the SEC is bad because everybody's doing that. Yeah, the problem is like the, their coaching search was such a disaster. I kind of get where you just settle on Pruitt. He's it, it seems like a guy who should have like a, a pretty high floor, but then. Uh, the more we, I mean, every time we see these defensive coordinator hires, obviously Smart has worked out great, but like defensive coordinators just do not, on on average, have a higher as high um, a floor or a ceiling as offensive coordinator hires. Um, and there's there's a reason, like there are questions about his personality that have been raised publicly now during SEC media days, but also privately before, like there was a weird weird fallout with him and Jimbo Fisher at Florida State when he was there for one year and they won the title. Um, he was out at Georgia pretty quickly, although he got hired by Alabama, so it's hard to really question that. Um, but like he, he moved around a lot early on, except for when he was under Nick Saban. So it does it does raise questions um, about you know his how he how he fits in with other coaches. Now now he's a head coach, so that's less of an issue for him um, in terms of his own uh, job sake for the next year or two. But it, I do wonder how he'll like build a staff and how he'll maintain just based on what you know is, is out there about him. So like I kind of get why Tennessee did this after the whole Shiano thing, but it's it's not the most inspiring hire. No, not at all. And and you know I, I still think it'll work out enough, if only because you know Tennessee fans are at least going to give this a year. Um, it's probably just a year uh, before they start getting ornery. I think a lot of it might even depend on how Vandy does. Like, if Vandy's kind of treading water under Derek Mason, maybe they're a little bit more calm about it. If Vandy's they able... can't lose to Vandy again. Is, no. is... I mean, they can, because they're not going to hire... fire Pruitt after a year, but unless something crazy happens. But I mean, If they lose by more than 18, maybe they do. That if they go 3-9 and nine and lose by eight, 19 points to Vandy, then maybe, yeah, then, then maybe we have some questions. Real talk, I got the balls at 4-8. Um, <laughs> I don't have the schedule in front of me. Who do they have at a conference? Uh, West Virginia, neutral site. That's a loss. Uh, yeah. They got ETSU and UTEP. Those are wins. Yep. Uh, you got road games at Georgia, Auburn, South Carolina. That's... Those are three losses right there. Plus uh, you have the Alabama crossover. Yeah, you got the Alabama crossover. Uh, you host Florida. You got Kentucky and Missouri in November. And then you're at Vanity to close. I might, I might even do a three and nine. <laughs> <laughs> that was my original. I thought three and nine. I'm like, oh god. Like, I, I feel like they could steal another one, but like, sure. They're just starting from a lower place in a lot of these teams. I think they'll beat Vandy. I think they'll, they'll obviously win the two uh, easier non-conference games, the ETSU and and I mean, think they 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 happen to catch UTEP at like the best possible time. I guess last year was probably the best possible I mean, well, time. Any year is the best possible time at UTEP. Right. Um, yeah, that, that, it's, it could be ugly, especially because, like, the quarterback situation um, is just not great. Keller Chris, like, was okay occasionally at Stanford, but he's he's very boring. Um, Jared Garantano had some moments last year. He's, like, the guy that I think the team probably hopes wins the job and that fans, like, ideally want to win the job since he's the homegrown talent right. in New Jersey. Homegrown as in he was recruited. He's from Jersey, so it's not exactly Knoxville. But, um, 
he had some just really rough outings through his first couple of years. So, yeah, just not not a lot there. They do get Juwan Jennings back, who was uh, by far their best offensive playmaker on the roster. He used to caught the Hail Mary in UGA a couple of years ago. Um, and he was suspended, I think, all of last year, or most of last year at least. I believe so, so that's, yeah. That's, that's a big help. Um, and defensively, they should have some stuff going for them. You know, it's, it's actually funny. I think, like, every single uh, – I was going through previews. Obviously, Bill C's aren't out yet, so I was going through a, different, there are a couple different sites. But I'm, I think almost every single team change in the SEC, which is, like, half the lead this year, ended up with a 4-3 to 3-4 or opposite switch. I feel almost like... every single DC move, change, uh, almost every single new defensive coordinator switched the defensive system from the turf before. Such a weird. Which just like that just I think that's just like just strange because I, I have it noted for a bunch here. I have it noted for Tennessee. I have it noted for. Um, I think I don't remember if Ole Miss was running the four two five last year or if they just are this year. Um, uh, Mississippi State is switching from a three four to a four three. I think Florida switches to a 3-4 with Brantham. Um, I think Arkansas switching to a 4-3 with, uh, with Chavis. Um, so that's at least like 5 or 6. Not about you, but I hate the 3-4. Um, I don't mind the 3-4. I think you just really, really need the right players right. for it. Which, like, um, when Wake Forest can... ran it, or does Wake Forest still run it? Because I feel like Wake Forest, like, has run a 3-4 in the past. They did when, like, Nikita Whitlock was there. Yeah, which you had a really good nose tackle, which right. is not uh, not a super... Uh, abundant thing like Alabama can do it because Alabama always has like three all all SEC linebackers and and their entire front defensive line you know they'll have they'll have four or five like all SEC level talents for three got for three spots right so yeah when you can recruit that kind of talent you can do it the problem is like a getting like the right size defensive linemen and also defensive lot three defensive linemen who can play that steam effectively at the college level is very, very difficult. NFL is a little more manageable. Sure. Um, out of all the new hires, uh, I think there's there's probably two that, that everybody will point to, and I, I'm curious to see what side of the aisle you fall on here. Probably Florida getting Dan Mullen or uh, Mississippi State getting Joe Moorhead. I'm of the opinion that, that Moorhead is a great fit for Mississippi State aside from the like non-geographic fit. Um, I think the offense is a great fit for what they have with Fitzpatrick. I think that in general, like Mississippi State lately has been able, starting with Mullen and probably more heavily able to do this too, has been able to get the, the level of playmaker needed to run that type of offense. Uh, so I'm really excited about it. I know we talked about Moorhead a little bit last week just in terms of like, is there going to be a drop-off with Penn State's offense? But yeah, I, I'm excited about what, what Mississippi State can do this year. I think they can honestly contend for the SEC West. Um, that's not to slight Alabama, who we'll get to, because I think Alabama is probably the top team in the nation. But like, if ever Mississippi State was going to be able to pull an upset there, this might be the year. Yeah, Mississippi State should have. Um, it's always tough when there's a coaching change, and while I think the there are enough similarities between the Mullen and the Moorhead schemes, where I don't think there should be a huge drop off in terms of of installation. You know, you never quite know how these things are going to go. Um, I think it's a very inspired hire. It's not an obvious one by any means. Um, I think it kind of came out of nowhere too. Um, yeah, it was like very like, efficient, very like they. I mean, I mean, they did so, know Mullen was leaving for like a long time. I feel. Yeah, it just like it like you look at the 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 Tennessee hire was like the most like bland SEC hire possible. And if you're Tennessee, like you can't really get away with that because Tennessee has been bad for a while now. 
Mississippi State definitely can't get away with that because, you know, on paper, they could be one of the two or three worst programs in the, in the conference. Um, so to go and get Moorhead, who's a forward-thinking coach, he comes from a non-traditional SEC background, which, you know, I don't think that's like an advantage necessarily, but I don't think it's as much of a disadvantage as some people may think if the alternative is just getting like whatever defensive coach stood nearest to Nick Saban for four years. I think he's, he's offensively just like he turned Penn state around James Franklin might not still be there if not for Joe Moorhead. And that's not like exaggerating really at all. James Franklin was extremely close to the hot seat. Um, at least in the oh, fans of the media's mind. And then midway through that year, a couple of years ago, the Ohio state uh, game. Yes. The Ohio state game. Um, Moorhead's offense really took a, took a turn. And since then they've been dynamite. Now, you know, we talked about them last week. If he can do somewhat similar things, uh, at Mississippi State, uh, they'll be in very good shape for at least this year because Fitzgerald is one of the best quarterbacks in the conference. Um, probably top three, depends on what happens with Alabama. They uh, they bring back four or five offensive linemen. They bring back uh, their thousand-yard rusher, Aris Williams. Um, defense, I have some questions about because of Bob Shoup. He's had a, a weird last couple of years, and they've just had a they've been completely unable to retain even with Mullen there for so long. I think this is their fifth defensive coordinator in as many years. Which is weird. Well, last year they had... Didn't they just trade with uh, Louisville, which is a terrible idea? They got Grantham, right? And yeah. then they sent out... Um, oh, what's his it? face? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who was bad? <laughs> Who was bad. Um, and then Grantham went to Florida with uh, Mullen. Uh, so they have Bob Shoup, who was at Tennessee most recently. It did not go very well for two years. Before that, he was at Penn State, and it did go pretty well. And before that, he was at Vanderbilt with Franklin, and that was pretty good, too. So last time, I mean, I think it really depends on, on what you're getting there. And, and obviously, Tennessee's issues were far beyond just the defense. So if Shoup can be what he was at Vandy and at Penn State, they're in pretty good shape. If he's what he was at Tennessee, then it's a little shakier. But uh, I think it's it's probably not the craziest risk, especially because this is going to be a very offensive-geared club. Yeah, I buy it. And honestly, like looking at... Looking at the schedule, I mean, they have Florida and Auburn back-to-back. Well, Florida, Auburn, LSU, and A&M, four straight weeks. They're going to be fired up for that Florida team. They are going to be fired up for that game. I don't think anyone really blames Mullen for leaving, but no. like, still. Yeah, they're still definitely those players will be fired up. There is a gap between the – there's a gap. There's Florida, Auburn, both at home. Then there's a then there's a bye, and there's at LSU and Texas A&M at home. To be honest, like, if you're going to have a stretch like that, three out of four at home and a bye in there is actually pretty good. Um, I would take, take that. It. Yeah, I'd take that going away. Um, back end's actually all right. Um, you get La Tech at Alabama, Arkansas at Ole Miss. Like you could easily go three and four in the uh, three out of four in there. My my one concern for Mississippi State is if they only win eight games in year one. I do. I hope for Moorhead's sake that their fan base isn't going to be really disappointed because a I think if you're Mississippi State in the SEC West, like you have to just take eight win years and you can get them. Uh, I know Mullen got them pretty cozy. But, like, that's always going to be – that should always be a pretty decent year, especially year one under a coach. Now, the ceiling, I think, is to probably finish second in the division and to maybe win, like, ten games. And if they don't get there, I hope they don't freak out. I feel like I feel like they'd be all right if they went nine and three and, and their only losses were to Auburn and Alabama. I feel like they could live through it. Yeah, I think that's a, that would be a great year for them. Yeah, because, like, when you have Fitzgerald, Aris Williams, like – those are two guys that, that like, are, you know, all-conference talents. Um, 
I think that the two of them alone, you bring back, you know, four or five starters in the line. Like, this offense should be fine. Um, and, they again, they do have the talent to be able to compete. Uh, so I, I'd say if they can go 9-3 and three or, or even go 10-2 and two and have the two losses be Auburn and Alabama, I think that's pretty legit. It, it just, to me, like, yeah, I, I am curious to see, like, how this goes. I almost think... For them, like it might be better to go nine and three this year versus go ten and two or eleven and one, maybe narrowly lose the division, and then after Fitzgerald and Williams leave, then there's a little bit of come back to earth, and then suddenly like Mullins dealing with questions in year two when they only only quote unquote go eight and four. Yeah, I, I buy it. Um, then the question becomes like, what does recruiting look like? And that's a legitimate question. I I, I think. Uh, I don't know the the full background of his full staff. I assume he has some SEC guys. I mean, Shoop obviously has SEC experience. He kept some Mississippi guys around. That's smart. So the recruiting is, is going to be interesting. I think he he's been so malleable in his career. Like he went from he made a pretty non traditional step taking the going from the Fordham head coaching job to the Penn State OC job. Ended up being brilliant. Uh, I mean, he has an SEC job two years later, but um, I think he's uh, adjustable enough where he'll be okay. And also. Like, if he's picked up anything from Franklin, I'm sure it's recruiting because that James Franklin is nuts at recruiting, and I still don't think he's a great game coach, but you can really make up for it by being a, an ace recruiter, and he is. So, I mean, if he's learned, if he's picked up, like, anything that James Franklin was putting down for a couple of years at Penn State, like, I, I wouldn't be too worried. Also keep in mind, like, it's not like Mullen's a local either. No, that's true. Mullen's a northeast yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. He's from, what, New Hampshire? Yeah, he's like... <laughs> He walked around in boat shoes all day. Yeah, granted, yeah, he was at Florida before, so he had right. like a little bit more SEC experience. But yeah, you you definitely do not have to. I mean, like Nick Saban's from West Virginia. He's not a North. He's a. I mean, West Virginia, despite what you know, it seems like is in the Northeast generally. It's Appalachia. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not the South though. So um, even if it has some, you know, more southernish to tendencies. Do with it, yes. It's still not the same. Like I don't think I don't think a lot of West Virginians are going to be going down to Alabama, and Alabamans are going to be uh, you know telling them they're home, um, at least beyond like Southern charm. But I, I, again, it's, you don't have to be from the South to succeed in the SEC. Like that's just definitely not the case. Um, right. Urban Meyer, same thing. Like that's it's been proven time and time again. If if you're a good coach, you can you can kind of win wherever. This is true. Um... So what do you think the pecking order is at the top of this conference as we kind of transition to the, the top part of it? Um, I think for me, I've got Alabama 1, Georgia 2, um, Auburn 3, and Mississippi State 4. Um, I'm intrigued by the Aggies just because of Jimbo's arrival, but I don't, I don't think that's going to go as well in the early going as I think people would prefer it did or maybe you're like thinking it will just because the fit for the talent there isn't necessarily easy. Yeah, I, I, I'm not buying the Aggies this year. Um, I think Trayvon Williams helps a lot. He's he's really good. I'm not a huge Nick Starkle fan or a Kellen Bond fan, so uh, I don't know how that quarterback situation is going to play out, and I, I think their offensive line still has lots of, uh, leaves lots to be desired. Um, you're welcome for taking your probable starting left tackle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, See, so yeah, I'm not buying A&M. I think that top four is probably what I would do. Um, it's just, I mean, Alabama, Georgia, just talent-wise, are, are very far ahead. I feel like Auburn's close. Auburn's quite good, and I'm pretty bullish on Jarrett Stidham um, at quarterback. Uh, I think they have some of their surrounding talent. You know, there might be some holes there, but they're quite talented as well. 
Mississippi State four is interesting. Um, I I'm rooting for them. I think they'll be very. They'll. I mean, not to make this a whole Mississippi State podcast, although they might be the most interesting team in this conference. But I could totally buy it. The other two I think are quiet and might make a push to finish second in the East. I think South Carolina, Mizzou are both intriguing. I go with South Carolina or Kentucky there. Kentucky and the quarterback thing scares me. It scares me, but at the same time. Mizzou, I'm still iffy about the defense and the fact that Heupel's gone at at Missouri. I mean, Locke's still there, so obviously, like he, he's. Are you not? Are you not uh, looking forward to the Derek Dooley uh, grand return to the SEC? Listen, I, I <laughs> like until Heupel showed up and started installing like a goddamn air raid at, at Missouri. Like Odom looked like he was going to lose the job in year one. So yeah, and I I think that's why I think Missouri is probably the highest ceiling, lowest floor. Right. I think there's the biggest range, not the highest ceiling, obviously, but I think the biggest range between like best possible, worst possible seasons is probably at Missouri in this conference. I buy that because the offense, if it's like it was in the last half of last year, they started one and five and ended up making a bowl, so they did a reverse Syracuse. Um, if the offense like holds on to like some of what it was down the stretch last year under with Heupel, who is obviously at US, UCF now. Um, they're in good shape. I think the defense is pretty experienced, so it wasn't good last year, but it got better. And Odom was a good defensive coordinator, so you would think he'd be able to fit something. Obviously, we, we know well that doesn't always play out, but hi, know, it might in some situations. Hi, <laughs> Pitt. Hi, us. Yeah, well, I, I, I figured I'd bury the other one first. That's fair. <laughs> um, Carolina... Uh, South Carolina, sorry, this is an ACC podcast. South Carolina. And you're with a North um, Carolina fan, obviously. Right. <laughs> um, Jake Bentley is probably also in contention for, you know, one of the top three or four quarterbacks in the conference. They will get Debo, Debo Samuel back, who's one of the better uh, still position players in the conference. Their offensive, like, between them and LSU, uh, can we get more interesting offensive coordinator hires, please? They're just... They both inter- promoted internally... And like I get that it's not this, it's not fair to blame like the new guys for the old OC, but like McClendon at South Carolina has never been an offensive coordinator before. Um, he took takes over for Roper, who was pretty awful at getting the ball in the end zone for two years. Um, obviously, last year things bottomed out when Samuel got hurt. LSU promoted their tight end coach, uh, whose name uh, where is it? I have it written down. Uh, Steve and Ensminger, who I had never heard of until last year after. The Matt Canada Canada hire turned uh, into a disaster. It's just uninspired. It's yeah. You would think that if anyone would make a, go out and just try to get like a proven like you're LSU, you ha- you you have some resources, and also you're the legendary coach right before you got fired because he could not field an offense and was not bringing the offense into the 21st century. So what do you do and now? <laughs> and yeah, so what do you do? And I, I don't blame him for Matt Canada not really working out. Clearly, there was just some kind of. Uh, clash there and just the fit wasn't right so you know it was one year whatever like you couldn't do better than hiring the tight end coach lsu scares me right now like as a program they could be pretty bad like they might be bad and like i just don't really know what what's going on there right now i i think people are underplaying coach O maybe being in trouble well i think coach O's in trouble I, I think my big problem with lsu right now is that like did Les miles fool everyone into thinking they were blue blood um because it seems like they can't necessarily attract the talent, coaching wise, and like I don't, th- I don't think that should be the case. And and, and I, as mentioned numerous times, like it, of all the teams at the top of the SEC, like I'm fine with LSU winning over most of them. 
Um, it, it's just, I find it odd that, that they've struggled to really get proper coaching talent in the door other than, you know, you know Aranda on the defensive side of the ball. Aranda, I mean, Aranda proves that they'll pay for it because he's making an absurd amount. I think he has a $10 million deal over four years for a coordinator, which is insane. Yep. Um, so they'll pay for it, uh, which is always a question with LSU because of the actual uh, economic situation in that state with regard to public education. True. Um, I think part of it's that Trocho is taking less than, than your average SEC coach. So that helps. And I don't really mind. I didn't mind the Trocho higher. Um, I was listening to something today in preparation here um, where it was like they compared it to like on paper the Dabo Swinney hire where, you know, he, he oversees everything. He's enthusiastic. He recruits. And then he just brings in top-level coordinator talent. And that's exactly what Dabo did um, with Morris, Chad Morris at first, who is now we talked about in Arkansas, and Brett Venables, who could be a head coach if he really wants to be. That's a question for him. Um, and Venables is still there, and they've just, you know, they've cycled through offensive coordinators, and they've all worked out pretty well. I get that model. It makes sense considering Coach O's recruiting prowess and him being an, uh, a Louisiana guy. Um, but he just... They, they're coming from such a high place to where they were competing for national titles under Les Miles and I didn't mind them moving on from Les when they did because things had clearly gotten stale but to the Orgeron tenure is very much an extension of the Miles tenure and that means he's not going to get the same type of rope that uh, a fresh new hire would get and that's not totally unfair especially if he's going to do the same things that got Miles in trouble yeah I mean it was the same thing that we said about I mean in different situations same thing we said about Schaefer uh, it was your continuity higher? You don't right. necessarily get the same rope. Uh, you were supposed to be kind of keeping the Marone ship afloat, and instead you did the exact opposite. So yeah, I, I, I think that you know you're right on there that um, that Orgeron probably has to prove something. That, like I think I think eight's probably the the best they're gonna do, but I don't know if that's good enough. It depends on who, what the eight are. Like if they Fair. pull a big upset, if they beat. If they beat Alabama, I think he's fine. If they beat Auburn, I think they're probably fine. Um, if they just tread water and it's eight, but it's like the same eight that they're, they've been getting, then I don't know. I, I think with eight, they would probably still keep O around, but there'd be a mandate to like, they'd have to make an outside offensive coordinator higher. And I think there'd be a lot of pressure on the recruiting class. Um, I'm not sure where their ranking is now, but I know it hasn't been as good as it was under Miles the last couple of years, which is why you keep Coach O. Um, I don't you don't get fired over a recruiting class, but I think if they weren't if they were to bring in something outside the top ten, there'd be a lot of heat going into next year. So I think odds are he's still there, but if they only win six or seven games, like it'd be pretty hard to imagine him sticking around unless there was a giant upset in there. Yeah, I'd have to agree there. Um, so I guess directing focus kind of to the to the top two teams here before we wrap up. Um, do you feel like Alabama is a better team than Georgia? Because obviously that national title game didn't necessarily solve that question for us given how close it was how it went overtime how it seemed like georgia did have alabama figured out for some time at least i think last year you could argue based on title game i think you could argue that georgia was right there with bama um both teams lose a lot i think georgia probably loses a little more and i think you just have to trust alabama a little more so it's tough i think it's still very close I would lean Bama. Um, but a lot of it on both sides really depends on the quarterback situation, which um, George obviously has a starter, but I don't think things are as obvious there as they may seem. I think Jake Fromm will start all year, but I, I, 
I'm interested to see what Jake Fromm looks like without Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle. And Alabama, I think, will probably do the chief quarterback thing for a while. Um, but ultimately, I think it's to attack Ravaloa's job. Well, I think, you know, Alabama also gets the benefit. And I'm looking at both schedules right now. Um, both teams really get the benefit uh, of not having to, like, Georgia has South Carolina week two on the road. But other than that, like, they do get to kind of ease into things, like, until they get at LSU on October 13th. Um, Alabama, on the other hand, like, almost all their manageable games like they don't really their season comes down to three games they're all in november and that's when you do not want to play alabama also true uh november 3rd at lsu november 10th mississippi state at home and then auburn to close the season um but that's really it like alabama should be able to run out to eight and oh even nine and oh because i don't i don't think lsu compete with them right now but um yeah I, I, th- this alabama team is 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 going to be a tank, but they're going to look like a tank in particular because of, of just how the schedule is designed. Uh, I think no matter who's a quarterback, like they should be well protected with four out of five returning on this line of NFL caliber players. Um, obviously have, you know, your, your usual you know, huge guys. Matt Womack is, is phenomenal. I think the, the biggest questions, as always, with Alabama are going to be how you turn over that defense and, and most of the team's gone. But because of how, because of how much time they have in garbage time, Everybody on the two deep is getting, you know, eight to ten games um, of action. So I think that's obviously an advantage right now for Alabama, and it's one that Georgia, if they compete um, recruiting-wise at the same level they have been over the last couple of years, and especially this past season when they had the number one class, like, you know, then Georgia can start enjoying the same spoils. I think they're just like a year or two away from that same level of uh, just elite depth. Yeah, I'd say the one thing that does help is that, like, Mark Ritt wasn't, like, not recruiting well there. It's just, obviously, Smart's taking things to another level. Um, so there is some, there's still, like, plenty of talent on the roster. It's just the top talent is all freshmen and sophomores. Yeah. Because Georgia did lose, 11, uh, I think, 8 of 11 starters from that defense, which was really nasty. Alabama loses a, a lot as well. I don't think it's quite as much, but... Um, I think it might be more. Think... It just, it doesn't matter because... <laughs> It might be more in terms of their starters. Yeah. Uh, I think their secondary is basically all new. I think they have more depth pieces with experience in the front seven, even if it's not starting pieces. Sure. Um, and Alabama always has those, like, like, they just always have such a glut of players, even ones that we might not know about because they, you know, played sparingly last year and are kind of ready to come in bid roles. Um, I think I, I just also trust the Alabama offense more this year. And I think especially once Tua takes over full time, which I fully expect. Yeah. Um, I think the downfield passing game will be something to be reckoned with, as we saw in the national championship. Obviously, Calvin Ridley's gone, but Jerry Judy should be pretty good. Devontae Smith caught the big uh, national championship touchdown. He's back. And then um, where Georgia loses their two-star running backs, uh, Alabama has, I think, three or four guys with experience coming back. Uh, Damian Harris is a 1,000-year rusher. Less flashy than your normal star Alabama running back, but still very effective. And then Najee Harris, who was... I think the number one or two recruit in the country a couple of years uh, last year, depending on the site you went to. Right. Um, he really didn't have a huge impact during the season. And then people have kind of, because obviously the, the storyline of the t- title game was the quarterback change. Um, Najee Harris had a huge second half in the national title game and really came on. And he, he actually admitted he was, he like, like uh, Tua was kind of considering transferring back. He's a California kid as well. Um, and then he had this huge breakout in the title game. So now he's, he's back and, and will probably be close to, uh, you know, uh, a split with Damian Harris, so um, they have just a lot of they just have a lot of weapons always. Even when it doesn't like necessarily seem like they do, they they just always have so much talent. So I, I definitely lean Alabama. 
although um, a lot of it's just that Georgia is, is youth and, and a little bit more unknown. But I also think Georgia is still clearly the best team in the SEC East. And by the time these two teams might match up in the SEC championship, um, both will, you know, the, the experience thing will be largely like a non-factor because, you know, by the time you get to November, you, your, your freshmen can be veterans if they need to be. Totally. Um, so I'm assuming we're both Alabama-Georgia in the title game. And yeah. Giving Alabama the win? I'm giving Alabama the win. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the same begrudgingly. Um, really, I'd probably root for Georgia. I think I think it's I, I think there's a very good chance that Georgia's positioned itself to be the post Saban superpower, but I think Alabama still has Saban. I buy that a lot. Actually, actually I know that. I know that for a fact. <laughs> I, I also think Georgia's probably undefeated going into that game. Yeah, the South Carolina game to be tricky. I, I think they're probably thrilled about. Actually, I know I've talked to fans. Um, they're thrilled about getting Georgia when they do. Um, just because there is so much inexperience, but I, I still would take Georgia in that game. Yeah, I, I, I think they probably undefeated. I think Alabama could drop one to Auburn or Mississippi State, but it's not really going to matter. Uh, I'm very curious to see if a Pac-12 team can kind of rise above um, or, or Oklahoma can, you know, figure it out post-Baker Mayfield because, honestly, we're, we're probably setting ourselves up for yet another playoff with two SEC teams. It is certainly possible, unless like, unless, you know, if we had a similar situation and Alabama was one loss and Georgia was undefeated, unless like Alabama absolutely smoked Georgia, like you could easily see it. If it was a close game, I think both would probably get through. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like you look at the Pac-12, and, and we'll get there next week. There's not necessarily like a a team that looks ready to dominate, especially win loss wise. Um, and then Big Twelve, we've already discussed like. Everyone's kind of discounting Baker Mayfield. <laughs> like, if Oklahoma goes ten and two. Um, I mean, they're the most talented team in that conference. But like, they go ten and two, or West Virginia even goes eleven and one. Like, there's just not. I, I'd be very concerned if I was the other conferences that that you're looking at a two-headed monster for the foreseeable future uh, between Georgia and Alabama. Yeah, especially if Georgia's going to continue to recruit like Alabama for 2019 is is so far ahead of everyone else. But Georgia finally like broke their crazy streak of recruiting national championships quote unquote last year and they're i think one and two right now i think alabama has has 19 blue chips already in in Jesus. the in the mill for 2019 they have 18 four-star kids and a five and one only one five-star so more um, than Syracuse has had since the recruiting era started yes 100 percent. and like i think that's like probably nine more than any other team has Christ. um so yeah i think alabama's gonna be okay and georgia is doing fine as well um they're both in, in really, really good shape. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> on that demure note, um, Dan, anything else you want to talk about before we uh, hop off for the week? No, looking forward to these last couple of Bayhams Army games. Hopefully, or maybe hopefully they're not the last couple. I think this would it would go to, there's a third weekend, right? There it is. Yeah, so it's like the NCAA. Um, yeah, so hopefully hopefully not the last couple, hopefully the middle couple of Bayheim Army, Bayheim's Army games. Agreed, agreed. They're down in Atlanta starting Saturday. Everyone should tune in. It's on ESPN. Um, but that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Trillions and Absolute Podcast for what's been over 70 minutes this week. Uh, you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry 
from delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.